Good morning and greetings to each of you in the name of Christ this morning. I don't know if you're here regularly. I don't know if you noticed what was different about that greeting. But normally I greet you in the Master's name. But I have a reason for greeting you in the name of Christ this morning. You can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. The message that the Lord laid on my heart, I feel like, well, I know, I'm not going to be able to do justice to this morning. But it's a message that I have a lot of passion for because it's so close to my own experience. And it's something that I think is different for all of us in our experience, but it ought to be real in our experience with God. I'm not going to give you a title until after I read this passage. Exodus chapter 30, beginning at verse 22, and reading to verse 33. Moreover, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, five hundred shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even two hundred and fifty shekels, and of sweet calamus, two hundred and fifty shekels, and of cassia, five hundred shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive, and hen, and thou shalt make it at holy an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, it shall be an holy anointing oil, and thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all his vessels, and the candlestick, and his vessels, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all his vessels, the laver, and his foot, and thou shalt sanctify them, and they, that they may be most holy, whatsoever toucheth them shall be holy." And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, This shall be an holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall ye pour any other like it after the composition of it. It is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Whosoever compoundeth any like it or whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger shall even be cut off from his people. Title of the message this morning is Anointed. I'm not going to make a whole lot of, of comments about this passage, but I want you to notice the last couple of verses it says, the last two verses there, it says, Upon man's, upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall ye pour any other like it after the composition of it. It is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Whosoever compoundeth any like it, or whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger, shall even be cut off from his people. So this ointment that was to be made was to be something that was very special. Something that had special significance. So much significance that only specific people and things were to be anointed with this oil. I also want you to look at verse 26. 
And thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith and the ark of the testimony. Now they, they were to anoint the tabernacle of the congregation, but they were not to anoint any people besides verse 30. And thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. This thing of anointing in the Old Testament was, was a sign from God. And there were other people that were anointed in the Old Testament. But specifically here, the priests were to be anointed. The high priest and his sons. And they were to have a special place and minister before God in a special way. So they had a special purpose. There's two other groups of people that were also anointed in the Old Testament. And they were kings and prophets. So the prophet Elisha was anointed to replace Elijah in his service for God. But also the kings like David and Saul were anointed. And so we get the idea of people who had a specific role to play in the plan of God. There's another Old Testament phenomenon that seems to run parallel with this thing of anointing. It's not particularly the same people, but it is similar. And that is the, the presence of the Spirit of God on individuals in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is different from the New Testament in that the Old Testament, the, the Spirit of God was only on certain individuals. But in the New Testament, the Spirit of God is available to all people, everyone who is part of the kingdom of God. So who was, who did receive the Spirit of God in the Old Testament? Well, as near as I can tell, there's four groups of people. Prophets, priests, kings, and people for whom God had a specific purpose. And so you have the same three groups of people, prophets, priests, and kings. Now, you can go into the New Testament and you can find where Jesus is a prophet, a priest, and a king. And he was also a person for whom God had a special purpose. But you can also see those same identifications given to believers, prophets, priests, and kings and people for whom God has a special service. Now, one of, the, one of the instances when God gave it to people who had a specific service to perform was when they were constructing the tabernacle. And so there were people who were given special gifts by God to uh, build the items that were to make up the tabernacle. And God put His Spirit on those people. And so there's a, another parallel that we can draw here, and that's the idea that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. And the Spirit of God is given to beautify the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to look at the New Testament mainly this morning. And I want to look at the fulfillment and the bringing together of these two things, anointing and the Spirit of God, not only on Christ, but also on you, His disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 20, familiar passage, it sa Jesus says, or it says, and when He had said so, He shewed them and unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad that they, when they saw the Lord. Then, Jesus said, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Christ. Christ was speaking. Christ means the anointed. When you see Christ in the New Testament, 
It means the anointed. And the other terms in the New Testament that are used for anointing are a version of that same word. So when it talks about people being anointed in the New Testament or someone being anointed, it's a version of that same word as Christ. Christ the anointed was sent by the Father for a specific purpose. He said, as the Father hath sent me, you, his followers, are also sent in that same way. And can we grasp the idea that who Christ was and the person that he was and the, the significant task that he came to perform, perform for his father, he says to his disciples, I am sending you in the same way. Now, how is that possible? Can we, can we grasp the honor that that is? Can we grasp the responsibility that is or the potential that that has? And with this purpose that Jesus is giving us, this powerful purpose to his disciples, he's, he links it to a powerful source, receive ye the Holy Ghost. I want to move now to Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his ministry. And it says in Luke chapter 4 verse 14, that Jesus came into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So he is beginning his ministry in the power of the Spirit. I want to start reading in verse 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I am anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to fulfill this purpose. He has chosen me. I am a special vessel. I'm a special person, a special minister before Him. And because of that, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because I am that anointed. That anointing presence of the Spirit of God is interlinked in the New Testament. The, the anointing in the Spirit of God is interlinked. And as the Father sent Jesus, anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, He sends His disciples in the same way. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21 says, Now He which established, uh, establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. God has anointed you for a purpose. I have a longing in my heart this morning for you to begin to catch a glimpse of something far beyond what I will be able to express with words this morning. Something that is far more powerful. But can we, can we stand in awe? Can we sense what this means? The sacred trust that it is to have the Spirit of God, to be anointed of God and have His Spirit dwelling within me, the divine opportunity and the unlimited potential. What could Christ do when He was here? Incomprehensible things. What can we do as His people? Not by ourselves, we can do nothing. 
but by the Spirit of God. We can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth us. And God is longing, I believe, desiring to bestow that on His people. In Luke 24, verses 46, this is near the end of the chapter, I mean, near the end of the book, near the end of Jesus' time here. And He said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And so Luke is finishing up this this letter here that he wrote, which is his gospel that he wrote to Theopolis. And then he moves into the book of Acts, or writes another letter in the book of Acts to the same person. And he says, beginning picking up in Acts 1 verse 3, to whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Ye shall receive power. There's a power that is coming to you from God. There's a promise from God. God has a promise that He has extended. He says back there in Luke, And you should wait for Jerusalem until you receive that power because the ministry that I have for you, the work that I have for you is only a work that you can do with my power. You need to wait to be endued with that power. And then in Acts, he says something very similar, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me. And that be there, be witnesses is not about doing as much as it's about being. You will be someone who will witness to, of me, who will be a witness of me. And all that the church is, and I get the opportunity to teach the book of Acts here in a couple of weeks. And when you go through the book of Acts, it's just amazing how this power unfolded in the city of Jerusalem and out beyond that and out across the whole Roman Empire. And all that the church is, its function, its witness, its unity, its interpretation of the word, its growth, its purity, its zeal, its faithfulness, all that is reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in your life. And that is what the new covenant is all about. Hebrews 8, verse 8, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me 
from the least to the greatest. All shall know me. But you notice, he didn't say from the greatest to the least. He said from the least to the greatest. Every person. Reminds me of the words of Jesus where Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last first. From the least to the greatest. All shall know me. Every person has the opportunity to know God. Lives anointed, men and women empowered by the Spirit of the living God, filling us, overflowing. Out of our belly shall flow rivers of living water. I'd like to look at several areas that I believe we, as Anabaptist people, need to consider and think about in relation to this anointing of the Holy Spirit. The first one is that the work of the Spirit is transformative. The overall message of the New Testament is not that the Holy Spirit is a repairman who comes in and fixes up old parts. The idea from the New Testament it is that God wants us to die and be reborn into a new creature. Something that is fully new, fully transformed into the image of Jesus. Not correcting who we were, but rather transforming who we are. Transforming our being into the image of Christ. Ye shall receive power and ye shall be witnesses that that being nature that's going to witness Jesus. And that word witness there is martyr in the Greek, which we now think of as someone who gives their life for Jesus. But the historical idea of that word was more the idea of a spectator. And then the moral sense of that word was someone who was an example. So you could transmit that into you are to be a witness so when people look at you, they are to see someone who is an example of Jesus Christ. That's the historic meaning of that word. See someone who is an example of Jesus. And the power of Christ comes into your life to do that work. And the only way I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm afraid that too many people in Christian circles and in our circles are self-satisfied and complacent because they are doing some good things. But the vital living being is missing. And this is not something that is a being versus doing. We need to be very careful about that. We should never look at something like this and say, well, it's not about doing, it's about being. But doing comes out of being. And so when being is right, then there's doing. So it's not about being versus doing. We should always do the right thing. But there should be something within you that is motivating and making you passionate about serving the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what being means. It's that inner part of who you are that is driving the outward part. So it's not just about doing those things because I have to. It's doing them because I want to. 
Our humanity does not give us an excuse to allow ourselves the pleasures of sin. The anointing power of the Spirit is given to us as believers to literally change our minds about life. To change the way we see life and to change the things we want to do. And to put off who we were and to put on who God wants us to be. What people should see in you is that you are motivated and compelled and inspired by something that is totally different than the rest of the world. When they look at you, they're like, what motivates this person? Why do they do the things that they do? And then they ask you questions as a result of that. And you know what? There's no way that we can achieve what the New Testament calls us to. The New Testament sets a standard that we cannot achieve. There's only one way that it's going to happen. And that is that the power of God comes in and changes who we are. And there's only one way that that will happen. And that's that if we die so that we can live. So it's really about that we have to die. That we can live. Transformative. The second thing we need is assurance. Assurance carries the idea of being confident, but not being confident in ourselves, being confident in another. And there's two ways that I think we need to have assurance. The first one is that we need to have assurance of sonship. In Romans 8, verse 15, it says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Somebody sent me a picture the other day, and it was a really neat picture. It was a mother who had flung the door open on their house, and their dog was running past her out onto the out the door, and she was smiling, and there was a her husband was kneeling on the sidewalk coming up to the house, and his son was in his arms, had his arms wrapped around his neck, and the daughter was running down the walk, all excited, her arms outstretched to welcome her dad home. And the title at the top of the thing said, the best feeling in the world. And the person asked me when they sent the picture, is this true? Is this the best feeling in the world? That is a good feeling. That's a good thing. It's a beautiful picture. Human relationships are a beautiful picture. That is not the best feeling in the world. The best feeling in the world is when God's Spirit identifies with your spirit that you are a child of God. That is a peace that the world cannot and does not know. And it is available to us through the power of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Spirit dwelling in us. The most profound moment of my life was when the Spirit of God was poured out on me. And I realized all that I've been seeking for, this is the truth. This is it. I know this is true because it identifies that something deep within me, that deep core of my heart that was longing to know what was true. The second thing we need is assurance of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So that's the idea of the king placing his special signet seal on your life, on his message. The Holy Spirit is that seal. Okay? Let's read the next verse. 
which is the earnest, and that word earnest there in the King James means pledge, which is the pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. That is God's pledge. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in your heart, you have a pledge that you have eternal life. That is the assurance of salvation. It carries the assurance of salvation. We need to be people of assurance. Assured in our sonship and assured in our salvation. The next one that we need to consider is unity. I'm going to read a whole psalm for this one. Behold, Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. The first verse of that psalm speaks of a spirit, a spirit of unity that dwells among brethren, a connectedness through spirit. The second verse talks about anointing, and the third verse talks about a place where there's everlasting life, eternal life. There's a story, and some of you read this story in the last couple of chapters of the book, Church Matters, about a man who came into um, Gary Miller's church when he was young. It was a man that spent a lot of time with his father. And um, after the man became part of their church, years down the road, Gary asked him, you know, why, what was it that convinced you that you needed to, that, to become part of, of our church, become a believer? And he thought he was going to say, it was all those times and all those discussions with my dad that he convinced you finally that we had it right. And the man said, the man's answer was, it's when I saw how your families live together. How good and how pleasant it is when people dwell together in unity. Paul challenged the Ephesian church in chapter 4, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit is not talking about uniformity. It's talking about a unified desire. It's talking about a unified goals. It's talking about unified interests. It's talking about unified glory. What we want to glorify is unified. But how do we keep that? In the bond of peace. So you get the idea with this, this thing of the bond of peace that, that peace is something that holds the unity together. And brothers and sisters, I want to, to challenge you this morning that if there is not peace with your brothers, if you have people that you're not at peace with, make peace. Because the Scriptures tell us, the Bible tells us we should follow peace. We should go after peace. We should seek for peace and pursue it. And that, when we seek that peace, when we pull that, we hold that bond around unity, we will keep the unity of the Spirit in that bond. But we must seek for peace. Oh, that our churches could be anointed by the Spirit of God. And like the fragrance of the precious ointment, it could go out to all those around us, spreading life forevermore. 
that it could flow out from us life forevermore. The next thing we need to consider is love. The, the fruit of the Spirit is first love. And Paul says that the love of Christ constraineth us. And that word constraineth carries two kind of two meanings. The first one is that it holds us completely. And so the idea is that the love of Christ keeps us in. It keeps us within a certain boundary. So, for instance, if I wanted, if, if all of us wanted to walk down that aisle because there was a fire, there could only be so many people at a time that could go down that aisle because they're constrained. We're constrained by something. We're held, we're held in. But it also carries the idea of compelling. So we're held into this pathway, but we're not only held into the pathway, we're compelled down the pathway by the love of Christ. And I want to submit to you this morning that the love that Christ demonstrated and the love that we are to demonstrate through the power of the Spirit is the most compelling force in the world. You can have no greater impact on the life of another person than to show them the love of Christ through the Spirit of God. It will be the way that we will win not only our brothers and sisters, but also the world through the love of Jesus Christ. The last thing I want us to consider is anointed interpretation of the Word. There is only one way that we can properly interpret the Word of God, and that is through the Spirit of God. John 15, 26 says, And when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Spirit of Christ will show us the living Word in the pages of the Bible. And we need the Word of God. We need to see the Word of God through the mind of God to understand the message of God. And we have the mind of Christ. How? Through the Spirit of God. And it's through, it's in that passage there in Corinthians that Paul's talking about, we have the mind of Christ. He talks about the glorious thing, things that God has put together for those who love Him that are revealed through the Spirit of God and through us having the mind of God to interpret and understand that. We desperately need a generation of people who approach the Word of God as if it has answers to the mysteries of life and they can be found within those pages. That we can find answers from God about how to live in our generation. We need to take hold of the Word of God as if we expect God to speak to us. He has promised He will speak to us. Take Him at His Word and pursue it. But the anointing which ye have received of Him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is the truth, and is no lie, even so, as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in Him. That's you. Yes, you can know the truth. Each one of you, from the least to the greatest, can know the truth. Because you have an anointing from the Father. Anointing of the Spirit of God upon your life. 
But note the last part. Even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The truth will, re- will unite you with other believers who are also led by the Spirit of God. It was so interesting to me, that passage in Ephesians 4, talking about the, the church. And we talked about this in the men's class, but that chapter 4 there, talking about the church, it starts out as one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And it expands out into the diversities, the different things, the gifts that God has given into the church. And then it comes back towards one. That we can all be built into the person of Jesus Christ. And so, as the Spirit gives into the diverse collection of people in this body and in in the bodies of believers around the world, it draws us together. We'll be united in Him. And so this this Spirit-led interpretation does not lead us apart. It leads us together. There's something we need to be very careful about and maybe even get away from some. We need to get away from commentaries of those who we do not know or do not know well. And I don't mean that you can't read any of those commentaries or use them for learning. But the reason why I tell you that is because it's one thing to say words and it's another thing to live them. If you're struggling with a difficult passage and you want good commentary on that passage, find a person whose life you can tell is being transformed by the Spirit of God. And that person is someone that you can learn from. That person is someone who knows what it means to walk with the Spirit of God. And I believe we need to move back toward or be challenged to consider that that's the most valuable commentary that we can receive is the commentary of someone who is living like Jesus Christ. So we need to be taught by others. Yes, and we can, we can learn from others by how we see in their example and the way they live and, and the way they, they teach us out of that life. But Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians, and he wrote a lot of things about brotherly love. He taught a lot about brotherly love. But he says this, As touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. So God, not only do people need to, you need to learn from other people, you need to learn straight from God yourself. Paul said that, they didn't need to be, he didn't need to tell them about brotherly love because they knew how to do it already because God had told them. So we need to be learning from God. I don't want to conclude this message without giving us a path forward. So maybe through the message this morning, you've been pricked in your heart. And you know that something in your life needs to be different. Well, that happened in Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So are there things that aren't right between you and God? Are there ways that things in your life that are holding you back from the the Spirit of God having the ability to work in your life the way that it should, repent. And repentance is not so much about being sorry. That's what happened when they were pricked in their hearts. Repentance is about turning the control of our life over to God. 
It's about giving Him full reign and full course and to do with us whatever He wants us to do. That's what repentance is about. It's about giving up our way, the way that we want to go, for the way that He wants us to go. And if we have sin in our lives, that's not the way God wants us to go. And so we give that up and say, God, you can take me wherever you want me to go. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This promise is unto you and to your children and to all. When we follow what God says, He will do what He says He will do. We can bank on that. Maybe you wonder how to pursue this promise of the Father. When we have an emergency situation, which the Lord's not working in our lives like He should be, that's an emergency situation. When we have an emergency situation, we call 911. Well, God has His own 911 in Luke 11.9. And I say unto you, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he not give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he get... If he asks a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks, or if he shall ask for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? So Jesus is making an argument. He says, Ask and it shall be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open. And then he makes this comparison. If you, in your human relationships, if somebody that you love asks you for something that would be good for them, say, a piece of bread, or a fish, or an egg. That would be good for them. If they would ask for that, would you give them something nasty and bad in return? Somebody that you loved? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Do you want the Holy Spirit of God? Ask, seek, and knock. And He will give it. One of the reasons why this is so such a powerful subject to me is because I became a Christian when I was 18, but I had no idea about what it meant to walk with the Lord. And I backslid for about four years after that. And I got to a place in my life where I realized that my life was falling apart. The expectations that I had about life were just falling apart in front of me. I had no idea what to do or where to go. I realized that my life that I had so well planned out was going to end up in destruction unless I found something different. And I had to give up everything that I believed. I had to basically say, it doesn't matter what I believe anymore because what I believe obviously wasn't right. And I started reading the Gospels. And I started in the book of Matthew and I read through the book of Matthew. And when I got to the end of John, I started over and I read through the book of Matthew again. And I suddenly started to realize that there were things in my life that Jesus was pointing out that weren't the way they ought to be. And what was I going to do with those things? And then He was telling me that I had to get rid of those things and live His life instead of living my life. And I said, okay, I'm ready to do that. And then I realized that the other thing I needed was the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life empowering me. And I started to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and, and dwell in me. 
And that was about a four-month process. And during that time, there were two major things that were in my life between me and God. They were things that I had set up as idols. They were things that I did not want to do. And I let go of both of those things. And when I let go of both of those things, God led me to John 1, um, verse 12. As many as believed Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And I fell down on my knees and I said, God, I want to be Your Son. And He poured out His Holy Spirit on me in such a transformative way that everything about life was changed. And not everybody has an experience like that. And I don't believe everybody has to have an experience like that. But I do believe that we all have to give everything to God. And it might be over a process of time. And we all have to be endued with the Spirit of God. And one of the reasons why our churches are struggling so much, and our churches often struggle so much with unity, and we struggle so much with with power over the flesh, and we struggle so much with the pressures of the world around us, is because we need an anointing from God on our lives. An anointing that has the power of an endless life. We started with Aaron and his sons. But God is waiting and longing to pour out an anointing upon His priesthood, the church. Not according, not after the law of carnal commandments, but after the power of an endless life. Hebrews 5.17 And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of carnal commandments, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw near to God. I want you to picture in your mind the first couple verses in Genesis. God made the world and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved on the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light formless, void, without life, without recognition of what was there. And the Spirit of God moved on that. And the Word of God came into into the equation and life, light was born. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May we see Jesus through the light that God has given us, the presence of His Spirit.